Welcome back to another episode of Outside In. I'm your host, Wes Rashid. Now, having grown up in an estate in South London where gang life was his life, the man we'll hear from today, Carl Loco, has shown others that even if you are in the bottom 1%, there is a path to the top. Many people who grow up with a hard start in life will build a wall. This man demolished that wall and rebuilt it brick by brick. And I'm sure that after this episode, you'll know why people admire how high his wall is. His story is one that is truly inspiring. So let's welcome him now. Hello, Carl. Hey, Wes. No, you're too kind. What an intro. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that one. <laughs> Mate, you're a top man. You're a top man, definitely. Mate, the distance between where you've come from and where you are now is huge. So let's go back to the beginning. Can yeah. you describe how you grew up? Yeah. I mean, do you know what it is? I always like to set the tone by saying it was idyllic. And when I say it was idyllic, I mean inside the house. Mm-hmm surplus of love like my mum and dad super present I mean every Saturday morning we wake up and dance frantically for about three hours to Cotton Eye Joe you know my my, my mother was a teacher previously her mother a teacher before her academic academia was as exalted you know so I mean there was a surplus of books from the charity shop you know nice. <laughs> all second hand <laughs> but I mean the literature and the content was still you know <laughs> it hadn't expired so literally was just kind of like a place where I could learn love and live but I mean outside was a very different story you know so I mean my mother's car was being broken into repeatedly um my father was actually having to go and have meetings with some of the um kids parents in the area Mm-hmm. Um, because I was being bullied quite profusely and my dad did his best to kind of broker some level of peace that I'll, I'll be able to, you know, kind of just navigate, you know. I mean, regardless of his efforts, it just always fell short, you know. Um, so th- that carried on. And I, I mean, like, where it really kind of got to a point where I'm like, all right, I have to do something and do something now. Um, was when a friend of mine's father was murdered over a PlayStation game. The young men that actually was involved in that, they actually came to my house a couple of weeks before and actually take, had taken some of my PlayStation games. Mm-hmm. You know, I say some like I had many, but I mean, like, <laughs> they, took, they took the PlayStation games essentially. And I remember just thinking, wow, that could have been my father if he was home. You know, that knife could have ended in his heart. And then, yeah, my 12-year-old brain got to ticking and said, listen, you just got to fix this. So, you know, I mean, I grew up on Mitesville Estate and the surrounding estate and the area. And I mean, it was a, a very different place back then. Very different. So, yeah. And you were 12? I was 12. What's, I mean... What sort yeah. of emotions were running through you at that time? Huge anxiety. Mm-hmm. Huge anxiety. Um, and a huge level of confusion. I felt very conflicted because... At school, I was being celebrated. Mm-hmm. I was in gifted and talented programs. Um, I had to stay behind after school to do further maths and further science because the school day just wasn't challenging. I was sitting in exam halls by myself, you know, like literally like a standalone sort of situations. I did my year nine SATs in year six. Like it was like a big song and dance, you know. Mate, you were my... killing it at that Yeah, point. absolutely. But I mean, um, that none of that served me when I left the school gates, you know, none of that helped on my commute to and fro. I mean, I still had to hide the, the coins in my socks when I'm going to the corner shop for my mum, you know, like, I mean, it just wasn't serving me. So, I mean, I was like, I'm being, I'm on the right track, but I'm not, 
So like that confusion and that conflict like was forever with me. I could feel it. It was it was quite a lot of tension, a lot. So a gang started. Yeah. Can you tell me more about how it started? Yeah, I mean, it's you see that tension that I'm describing. Mm -hmm. Um, it was because I was in a in an odd sort of limbo. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to kind of like evacuate socially completely from the area and kind of like just disappear um whatever that looked like whether it meant just staying indoors forever <laughs> like i didn't want to do that but i also i was very scared of the prospect of subscribing to that way of like living you know it was alien to me you know my parents don't use profanity let alone break the law in like, ex like explicit ways of which I knew would be the case there. So I was like, I don't want to be here, but I don't want to be there. And that limbo, I just found others that was in that same limbo and we banded together. And that was actually my first gang that I met. Like I had no kind of clout to join a gang. So I had to make one <laughs> and then make the clout through that gang, you know? And yeah, it was just young men in that same situation, but we, we were quite ambitious. Mm -hmm. And um, that ambition actually led to those who were coming from maybe a initiator background rather than an imitator. So an initiator is maybe someone that comes from a generic kind of like narrative, maybe mother on a substance, father's not present, you know, and then maybe they've been exposed to certain things from very young. Whereas me, um, you could refer to me as an imitator. I didn't have that home situation yeah, I was in proximity and in the area and also had to then kind of like assimilate, you know. And um, the initiators actually ended up joining um, my group as well. So that gave us a lot more kind of clout and capacity, essentially. And yeah, just kind of ride, rode that wave, you know, for a little while. And then joined the main gang in the area, the, the ruling kind of group. And yeah, just kind of did my part. What was it like day to day? It was an adventure. I gotta be honest, it was definitely an adventure in regards to complete and utter uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I'm someone that kind of thrives with that level of uncertainty. So on that side, it fed me. Everything else it just took. <laughs> I gotta be honest, it was like it was like a a blade with a poison handle, you know, or a poison grip. It just like you might have felt like it was defending you, helping you, supporting you, but Really, it was it was taken, you know, to the point where I feel how much I lost back then, even today, in terms of what has followed me into today, like my PTSD and other things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was a tough gig. You know, at the time, you tend to romanticise certain things and make it out like maybe it's something else that... That's like a human nature thing. You isn't know, it? yeah, to... survival essentially, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it weren't, it weren't the case. You know, it was definitely taking a lot more and it was, it was just damaging us. You yeah. know, um, we were very, very damaged. You've come a long way, man. And I can't imagine you even considering your future at that time. Did you? Do you know what? <laughs> no. I always kind of had this initial, and this is what I'm saying, this, this, the system's just so weird. It just puts value. We have artificial authenticators to kind of say that, yes, this means that you are and you can, you know? Yeah. Um, I had a rare ability to regurgitate, hence why I'm in the top sets for all my classes. My test papers are littered with green ticks and smiley faces and 100%. That was my norm. 
you know, because if you gave me information and asked me for that same information again, a month later, I'll give it to you as you gave it to me, you know, mm. and everyone would clap. Big hoo-ha. It made me feel as if I had a bright future because all my teachers were saying, you, you can be and do whatever you want, you know? Mm -hmm. My parents also, they had made that migration from West Africa, Ghana, to the UK on that American dream, you know, that, listen, Hollywood has told us that there's opportunity, you know, over here. This London American dream is a possibility if we have, like, meritocracy exists. So if we have a bright um, child, that, that bright child can shine and that shine, you know, can um, radiate our lives, you know. So my parents looked at me every single day like a meal ticket. So I did feel a deep conviction that I had a bright future. But that being said, I couldn't see past today. Mm -hmm. You know, and where I was at and where I was from, um, the theme was quite dark, you know. So, I mean, yes, I knew I had a future. Could I see that from there? No. And children are just ultimately in youth. It just makes you very short-sighted, you know. So, yeah, I, I want to say I had a conviction that there was maybe more available for me. But could I see the more then? No. How did your family feel about your involvement in gangs? I mean, it broke them. It broke them. Um, I don't think even to this day, they truly let me know the effect it had on them. I think, I think it has, like, in terms of, like, their blood pressure and everything, I think it did have effect even on their physical health, on their mental health, maybe strained particular relationships they had with, you know, um, family and friends because it was basically known of my involvement and that was shunned and the rest of it and then maybe feeling ostracized because of it and yeah I think it took its toll on them you know in, in a major way you know I do remember one time speaking to my mother and she was just like the one thing I thank God for is um when I hear a siren or I see sirens on going past me whether it's the ambulance or the police I don't think whether they're on their way to pick you up or you know take you somewhere you know, essentially. And I was like, wow, you had that every single time, you know? So, yeah. But you did change your life around. Yeah. So talk me through that, because there's someone in particular, Pastor Asher, that really kind of helped you see the light, yeah. I would say, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, was, it wasn't a long process, but what does she mean to you? I mean, Pastor Asher Mimi is, for me, South London's Mother Teresa. Like, there is no... There's no dispute. That, that is like a beautiful me. way to describe yeah. it. <laughs> no, I mean, I've got to be honest. What she did was maybe it's not on a macro, but on the micro level, I mean, it had that level of impact. You know, she saved lives, literally. And she did it in such a selfless, her approach was selfless. Mm -hmm. It was um, around her own personal sacrifice, you know, and in, in quite explicit ways, like... um surrendering and turning her living room over to like a, a youth center, you know, even though technically it, can't, it definitely ain't appropriate for that. You know, she would fit a snooker table and a te table tennis in there so that we're able to kind of just be in there, you know, and be entertained and engaged, you know, while she was like helping rehabilitate us essentially. So, I mean, yeah, no, she's a superwoman and I definitely owe her a lot. Wasn't a quick process, though, was it? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I mean, so you know, like first couple of meetings are like, yeah, I'm not having any of this. Or, yeah, or were you kind of curious at that point? I, listen, curiosity is a big part of me. 
Yeah. You know, I'm forever curious. That is the reality. So she did kind of pique my curiosity, just and more intrigue. But that being said, like, yeah, she definitely, it weren't simple. She didn't have a, yeah, there was no clear runway. Our interactions could cover a number of different kind of bases. Like, I mean, it's... She could make progress and then a certain situation might arise that might cause me to take maybe 10 steps backwards. And, you know, it was gymnastics, you know, essentially. <laughs> but I mean, she was diligent. Yeah. She was consistent. Um, and she just had a deep conviction that people aren't what they do. She would always refer to who you are, you right. know. So, like, strip away the identity from yeah. the person in a gang. Absolutely. Well, actually, that person is a product of their environment. Absolutely. And their upbringing. Absolutely. Right. She would, yeah. like, she, she's like, I am not against anyone. I'm against certain ideologies, though. And when people embrace these ideologies, they carry out and they maneuver and they navigate life um, a certain way, you know, but it's the ideology because they can embrace another one. And that programming is going to see a different output, you know, and she was, she, she was big on that, big on that. So I believed it. And then I began to see it mm -hmm. because once upon a time I hadn't embraced this ideology and I wasn't living this way, you know? So I was like, mm, if I embrace another ideology, I'll be living a different way, you know? So yeah, I mean, she's yeah, real hero. That's the thing about curiosity. That's the first step to motivation that then is the next step to having a drive to want to do better for yourself. But before Pastor Mimi was around, was there any other role models that you could look up to? <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably not ones that you would look yeah. up to, though. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, for sure. I mean, my first heroes were definitely gang members. Yeah. Absolutely. My first heroes were gangsters. My first heroes were drug dealers. Yeah. And for, for, for many reasons, actually. What I admired the most was the audacity, yeah? It was the sense of pride. And even though it's skewed, the set of principles in which they're not willing to kind of like compromise, you know, and just the ability to drive German cars, wear Italian clothes, fly to tropical destinations, you know? It was only those doing it illegitimately in my community that could do it, you know. So, yeah, they gave us a lot to kind of look up to. I suppose a lot of strength and courage in being in an environment like that as well. Absolutely. What was your first job away from gang life that you had? <laughs> my first job away from gang life was a cleaning job, actually. Yeah, Honest yeah, I mean, job. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. Like it. I mean, it definitely, I used the toilet, toilet bowl as a microphone to speak into the ether. And tell the universe <laughs> that I will not be, I will not be cleaning too many of these for, for too much longer. But for now, I'm gonna do a spanking job, you know. So I actually took that cleaning job for my mother. Um, mm. it was my mother's pride and joy actually because it was it paid between um, like ten to twelve pounds an hour, of which it was a on a part time basis. My father he worked for the security firm as a security guard, and my mother cleaned at that firm's offices. Um, she had had it for about ooh, over a decade, that job there. 
And while she was doing her full-time nursing of like 14, 16 hour days sometimes. Huh. But that being said, when I said I like I, I had way too much pride to sign on, like I've I've never signed on in my life. So like not that there's anything wrong with it. I just couldn't at that time there. So my mother gave me that. Like it was the only thing she had. Like she she had held this for when she just parted ways with it. She was like, listen, it's not much, but this is like your inheritance is what I got for you, you know? So she spoke to them and they were totally up for it. They understood. They had um had a great reference in terms of my father and my mother that worked for their company. And yeah, they just kind of understood my situation, knew where I was coming from and was just like, yeah, they'll give me the job. So I didn't have to do no interview for it or anything. And I just took that over and it kind of, Helped to give me the space I needed to plan and pursue. Yeah, I love that. And that kind of set you off on to your entrepreneurial journey. Absolutely. And you did a lot. You've done a lot. I mean, you've worked with organisations and charities to help young people who are in a similar situation as you were. So can you just describe what you've done? Yeah, I mean, in terms of um, third sector, yeah. initially I didn't even know it was a sector. Like, let's just put that out there. <laughs> like, a lot of things that I've kind of entered was just my response like it was how i responded to what was going on so i was helping to try and broker peace because i was quite a significant figure in like lambeth south london because of my gang exploits you know um i had hood celebrity status you know that being said once i realized that that weren't the way of being and it was actually not defined as winning and that's actually losing I wanted to help others not lose and win, you know? So, I mean, trying to broker peace, I didn't actually realise that by brokering peace, it was gang mediation work. Right. <laughs> I had no clue it was a, a, a thing. I didn't know if you broker peace, it's actually a job and people are doing that and, you know, it is like, you know, something. I didn't have a clue. So I ended up doing that and then I was told one day that that is mediation work, you know, and um, we need mediators, you know, to help to kind of bring certain tensions down and to kind of just save lives ultimately. 100%. So I started doing that and then the local government understood how effective I was at it and then they began to kind of like um bring me on to do it, like wanting to kind of pay me to do it in certain ways. And then I was like, oh, this is a thing. I was like, I'm doing this anyway and would do it naturally. So, I mean, if the byproducts that I can make some means, I'm like, yeah, all in. So, I mean, it went from that and just kind of like snowballed, you yeah. know, um, to a point where in any way I could bring about options and opportunity for escape and exit for those that were caught up in the life that I was or communities that I was and the other ways it can manifest itself you know whether that be through mental health or homelessness or just criminality because criminality mm. and gangsterism ain't always connected you know you could be a criminal without being a gang member so I just started kind of rolling that out in terms of advisory work for big organizations you know huge charities that wanted to kind of like target these problems you know I started doing work with other local authorities not just Lambeth to kind of like help them and to kind of give them some direction. I began to do consultancy for um, some of the big corporates mm -hmm. in regards to um, how they direct their CSR efforts. I began actually raising money myself for um, organisations that needed it to transfer it into like real help, you know? You um, raised like six million quid? Or yeah, yeah, I mean, like over the years, I've probably, charitably, I've probably raised north, um, helped raise north of about 10 million. Wow. Yeah. 
That's inc yeah. an incredible impact. Yeah. Even with all of that, which is massive change, you're helping yeah. underprivileged, underestimated. Underestimated. <laughs> yeah, underestimated. Which is, by the way, the, the term, the <laughs> phrase that we use on our podcast okay, as well. Okay, yeah. Very much. Yeah, underestimated. Much. That's it. Um, <laughs> and you, you're trying to help transform lives. Absolutely. For I mean, those individuals are not afforded opportunities. Agreed. I mean, there's a conveyor belt. So I, I'll never forget going into, I believe it was Whitemore Prison at the time. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine, he's um, serving life in there. And I went to go and visit him. And as I walked into the visiting hall, I greeted about maybe eight of the other inmates, eight other inmates, sorry. And there was about maybe 15 on the floor in total. I remember the govs looking at me like, how can he know eight other prisoners? They know the dynamic and the nuances and even know that not even all of those prisoners I greeted are like one group. So they're like, who's this guy that knows all of them, you know? So they're just looking at me in a certain way and I could just, I picked that up, you know, and understandably, you know? But then I'm like, yeah, but they're all from Lambeth. <laughs> you know? And I mean, just the wow. probability of that. You know, like, 100%. you know, th there is a level of engineering here. There is a level of like, yeah, there is a conveyor belt. You know, there is a um a pathway for some that's it's, it's an easier pathway into progression. And for some, there's a pathway to like to degress. Like literally, it's just a reality, you know. So, I mean, some of the statistics that are out there in terms of um inclusion just reflects this, you know, it's just a stone cold reality, you know? So, I mean, I spent a big part. So when I was, I was doing it explicitly for like those coming from detrimental kind of like gang stricken situations. And then I realized that that was a byproduct of the fragmentation of our society. So I started to work more on those disparities, you know, and I, I realized just how much of a role the private sector could play because um, employment helps in a number of ways, you know, from identity to self-esteem to being able to provide for oneself, you know? So I began like a bit of a crusade, a personal crusade to just go to C-suites and say, listen, like there are deep reservoirs of talent that you are ignoring, you know, the underestimated, you know, the underrepresented, you know? So it kind of turned into that for maybe the last like eight years. And I just kept on campaigning that C-suites, you know, um, and just kind of just telling them that they need to, you know, open their eyes and like smell the coffee, essentially. Were they receptive to it? Yes, but the institutions, no. Because like there is this thing about tokenism. Yeah, All right. absolutely. You now you're talking to the right C-suite, that's great. Yeah. They go to, I don't know, the department heads. Mm-hmm. We need to go in this direction. Yeah. Make it a priority. Might last for a couple of years, which yeah. is great. But then that surge then fizzles out because Absolute. they've got some other priority. Absolutely. No, listen, it is cosmetic. Let's not I'm not here to like I I am now in this situation where I don't like I don't really care. Not that I don't care who I piss off, but you know, like <laughs> you're being honest. You know, basically. I'm just being honest, you know. <laughs> I had to be quiet for a little while. I was actually like I really? couldn't yeah. I couldn't racialize the conversation at no point pr previously. No way. Like they understood the class issue. Mm -hmm. Like you can't deny a class system or reality when we have a literal monarchy. I would approach it via like class, but in terms of race, I had to ignore the fact I was the only black man in every room I was in. 
I had to mm. pretend that that wasn't the case, you know, and do more around, ah, oh, the working class part of the narrative. But it's quite clear and explicit that there's another difference or another distinction or another, you know, like, <laughs> thing to consider, you know. But, yeah, I mean, like, in terms of these um, companies, people, what I realised, would change, would warm up to the concept. People would. They'll be like, yeah, no, you know what, I can see this. I hear you, it makes sense. But, these are people within these institutions and that, i got to be honest, are systemically fashioned and situated in a way where it presents more hostility to what they would refer to as the other. I, I don't even know if you'd call it self-interest. Maybe that's the wrong terminology, but people are most concerned about their jobs and their status, et yeah. cetera. Yeah. Plus, if you are, I've worked with large companies before, you might be speaking to the decision maker who won't be the decision maker in like six months time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so that conversation hasn't passed through into the organization as well, which just creates more friction. Absolutely. I actually want to move on because you, you rolled shoulders with some high profile people. So have you always felt comfortable in company like that? Yeah, actually. Um, company. Yes. Environments. No. The aesthetics of a certain room, you know, might um, intimidate me initially, be quite imposing. But when it came down to the people that filled those places, I think it's probably what I drew from gangsterism, actually. I just refused to be intimidated. Everyone is humanised when I meet them. So, yeah, they tend to feel that. So, yeah, no, it's effective. It works. And... uh... How did you end up working with Youth in Action was an organisation that you worked with as well? Yeah, I mean, so that was actually Pastor Mimi's um, charity, mm -hmm. you know, so it was a faith-led organisation of which essentially was a response again to just the numerous um, stabbings and shootings and the rest of it. And yeah, we just literally was like, the solution doesn't lie with um, maybe the elders in society it's like literally it's with the youth you know they understand it they see it they experience it they have proximity proximity to it so literally the youth need to get in action and that was what it looked like it looked like from marching to campaigning to our mediating to any way we could get busy and kind of help yeah so how long were you doing charitable work advising and doing TED talks as well by the way i know yeah. that you did too right yeah so how long how long was that? Um, that was about I would say ten years in the third sector explicitly. Mm -hmm. Um, whether that be from writing reports to consultation for charities to advisory work for the Palace Foundation and um Prince Harry to advisory to the policy teams at Number Ten to CSR departments of like the Big Four and other organisations. And then literally that overall roadshow is what I refer to it as of going to these C-suites and just kind of just saying, listen, look, there is more, there is a, the hidden alumni is what I refer to them as. Yes. Yeah. You know, In your audio book, yeah, you this, right? yeah, yeah, the hidden alumni. So I'm like, you guys literally like they're hiding from you essentially and they're hidden from you. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the fact that they're not seeing stories and points of like reference where they see themselves in situations which is to be sought after 
causes them to shrink personally, um, coming from those marginalised, excluded um, narratives and positions within society. And then also, because you believe on some level that a certain group holds the monopoly of talent and ability, you're not even looking in that direction. So they're just hiding in plain sight. You know, so I felt like my job on some level was to say, listen, there is more. You know, because I was actually asked whether there was more on one time, like quite explicitly, <laughs> was quite a weird evening, like where the guy was just being honest. He was like, I just refuse to believe that there is more of you. Like, and he just was like, I've been taught to believe that meritocracy exists and that the creme rises to the top. And those that are literally in those situations is because they're the most kind of qualified and able to be. But I can see that you possess an ability to lead and to contribute but yet your position in life doesn't speak to that of which I know you carry, you know? And he's like, is there more carriers? And I'm like, there's a lot more carriers. Like, honestly, I'm just probably the chatterbox out of the carriers. And so <laughs> you've noticed me, but I mean, like there's those that carry a lot more than me coming from these marginalized, disenfranchised communities, you know? So, yeah. Out of all of that, so up to this point, what would you say is your proudest professional achievement? Oh, proudest professional achievement. It has to be Black Seed. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. It's the, because um, I'm equal parts missionary and mercenary. Yeah. And as a vehicle, Black Seed, which is a tech fund mm -hmm. that is led by myself and co-founder. Um, we're GPs of this fund, of which we are both Black. You know, so it's black led, but we invest explicitly in black founders, of which we're the first of our iteration, maybe globally. There's others that's maybe black led that has diverse investment founder remit, but in terms of explicitly black, we might be the only ones and definitely the only ones in Europe. Um, and by consequence, the biggest fund of that case and that size in Europe. You know, there's others that are maybe doing it on a smaller level now. And it's not because our level's huge, by the way. It's because no money comes this way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's a 10 million pound fund. But I mean, but for me, it's like, it's just the hope it presents. Again, it was a response. A lot of what I do is just responding to what is happening. Um, my now co-founder reached out to me and after taking part in 10 of the country's top accelerator programs, having pitched to over 100 VCs, was unable to raise a penny, you know? Mm -hmm. And he understood it wasn't down to merit. <laughs> you know, he was like, I got NVIDIA as a partner, I got the NHS on the hook as a client, I own the patents, it's timely, because it's a telediagnostic bit of tech that can triage and detect um, COVID and the rest of it. And he was like, this just isn't, it's not making sense, you know? Um, so he reached out to me and we got this running joke, not because I'm any lighter than he is, because he's actually a mixed race chap, yeah? But I mean, it's essentially because my black book is darker than us all, you know? And he knew that it's going to take a warm introduction. He knew For it sure, was going to yeah. take that to be able to kind of like unlock um, that funding. So, I mean, these suspicions were correct because within two or three phone calls, I was able to help him raise his seed of like 90K. That being said... George Floyd's online execution happened like about a week after that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so we were already having frank conversations. It's lockdown. Imagine that kind of picture. It's like it's lockdown. Um, he's reached out to me to kind of give me a deep dive into what he's been building and what he, his plans are. 
because I was like the furthest thing from tech, you know? So, I mean, that being said, him being a techie, I just remember kind of going down this rabbit hole and I'm like, all of these things are firing in me. I'm like, this is blimmin' brilliant, you know? So I had to be able to take what he had given me to be able to regurgitate. And this is where the regurgitation comes back in handy. Full circle, you know? So I regurgitated it to some of my um friends who are high net worths. And they were like, yeah, they got appetite, they want to invest. So we're already speaking about how he was overqualified in some reason because that was like his third startup. He had raised successfully twice in the US Texas at that. Gotcha. You know, um, and he had worked with the likes of like SpaceX to Tesla and, you know, like he's just a complete, uh, like, you know, he's just overqualified essentially. Um, but that being said, when George Floyd happened, our frank conversations got a lot franker. So we were just like, it is because we are black. <laughs> like, you know, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to kind of get to that. It's like, yeah, because we are black, 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 black. I mean, black, there is automatic assumptions because we are black. There's unconscious biases because we are black. I mean, you tend to like believe and see value in what looks like you and what you can relate to. And that is not a possibility or it's a harder possibility when you are black. And if you look at that room, there is no black people. In that room, there is no black people. And in that position, there is no black person. And where is the black X and the black Y and the black this and the... It's just, you know, it's because we, eyes is black, you know? You know, so, <laughs> so then we moved it on, like, you know, and we're just like, you know, we can move it on a micro level like we have done just now, or we can approach it on a macro, you know, we picked the macro and we've been able to kind of get to first close just now, you know, and we're trucking on, we've done our first ICs and um, we're, we're deploying, you know, so like for me, that is probably my proudest professional um, achievement is to be able to kind of set up this fund because the barriers to play is huge. Like, I mean, it is so huge. You need like maybe just half a million just to kind of sort out, sort out the technical plumbing, For the sure. legalese and all the rest of it just to even get started, you know, of which I didn't have that and neither did my co-founder to give that in, you know. So, I mean, like it's been huge, but I mean, we've pulled it off and I'm extremely proud of us. No, man, what you've done throughout your whole career, entrepreneurial journeys, what you're doing with Black Seed, your charitable work, it shows the kind of man and values that you have and the passion that you have as well to really affect change. Honestly, it's hugely inspiring. And I can just feel the energy. Man. Even before <laughs> even before when we were talking, you were having a little cup of coffee there. Yeah. Your energy is incredible. Thank you. Um, and I hope this projects through to the audience as well, because there's a great man here. I want to just talk about the landscape then for black entrepreneurs. Yeah. Because clearly you saw that it was a massive problem. Yeah, huge. Do you think it's fixable? All right. So I am an optimist. <laughs> yeah. But I tend to shoot for hope from a place of reality. So I'm quite practical. It won't be fixed this century. Okay. <laughs> I mean... Will it ever? I think so. What would it take then? It would take intention. It would take um, an acknowledgement and a forsaken of denial, mm -hmm. you know. It will take a collective effort. Yes. 
and it will take time. <laughs> it will. I, I, I don't think over the next 100 years, anyone's going to enter a room and not be a woman or a man, not be gay or straight, not be old or young, not be, you know, black or white, whatever. I don't think that that's going to happen. Actually, I know it won't happen, you know? So it's like we can move towards it you know, where the parameters of someone's ability to realise their ambitions, their hopes, their dreams is down purely to how big they can dream or how clearly they can see it and how much work they're willing to put in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, but we are far cry from merit. Like, I mean, I even have to... Like I always say it, and I say it unapologetically, if I wasn't as well-connected as I am, I have the veritable lottery ticket win. You know, I am, I have proximity and a warm introduction to almost anybody. If it wasn't for that reality, amongst put, other things, we wouldn't have even been able to raise. That's just the reality. You being so connected, do yeah. you put that down to luck, hard graft, your ability to code switch in your own words. Yeah. Right. What do you put that down to? It's definitely a bit of luck. A hundred percent. You can't take luck from from it. But you put yourself in that those positions. Absolutely. I mean, the more you put yourself in those positions, the more lucky luckier you get, you know? But again, if it wasn't for even my gang history, I've seen people be humanized in deep ways you know i've seen life choices take what is kind of professed kings in the underworld to lowly realities you know i've seen the fact that whoever is whoever a a discharged firearm to just hit that person or to hit you can just level you you know i've seen just the reality of humans being human you know and that's lent to me when I'm doing my social commute because whoever I meet, it's just a person. So I'm, I still tap them a bit too hard on the back. I still kind of give a, a bit more eye contact than maybe most people are used to. I still kind of, you know, um, just humanise and engage with them on a human level, which has been fertiliser, actually, for um, my network and for kind of like being um, taken on in certain groups, you know, because I'm a- I am able to just humanise and people are human. You know, so I mean, that being the case, amongst other things, it has meant that I have been able to actively kind of be in a position, but I can't take away the luck element because I remember there was one night that really kind of exponentially did that, you know, and I could have not been in that room for a number of reasons, you know, so that's maybe the luck element, but every other part of it has been... Um, I learned relational power on the streets. I understood its significance. I understood that it was it enabled me to not have a drought, even when there was a drought. You know, so um, I superimposed that into the mainstream. You know, I did thirty to forty one-on-one meetings a week. Wow. You know, for several years. Yeah, I've shaked a lot of hands. You know, so I mean, yeah, there's definitely some intention, but yeah, you can't dispute that there's a, a, a level of luck too. The venture capital industry is very relationship-based yeah, as well. absolutely. I so, mean, I'm home now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be honest. I found a place, like, for me, like, I am, like, 
the, the one thing about me that I haven't cracked, I can't sell something I don't believe in. Oh, but yeah, I'm ahead of a salesman. Mm-hmm. But literally, I have to believe in the product, which maybe to my own kind of like barrier. Like if I didn't, if I could sell how good I can sell without believing in something, I'll, I'll probably be one of the wealthiest men on planet Earth, you know. <laughs> but I mean, like it's very much relations, relational and sales, you know, in terms of VC, you know, whether you're selling to the um, those that you want to invest in, you know, that you are the person they should take their money from or selling to like fund of funds in terms of their like you know that you are the person they should place their money for you to deploy and yeah definitely and the relationship part of it is like I'm good at creating depths of relationships you know it's about the depth of them it's not just about having contact with someone it's about the depth of that and there's yeah I I feel like I'm home right now so I'm enjoying it. It feels like although the gateway into the startup and venture capital industry was through your co-founder, yeah. Cyril, right? Yeah, correct. He provided the gateway, but yet your past experience of paying it forward. Yeah. And then your ability to network, you call it lucky, but I call it putting yourself in that situation in the first place. Yeah. Actually gels really nicely into what you're doing now. Yeah. So you're chairman of Black Seed. Yeah, correct. So let's get a bit technical now. Yeah, go It's a £10 million pound fund. Yeah, you're starting to deploy capital. Yeah, correct. So you're actually writing checks to black-owned businesses, right? Yeah. So what value? 200K. 200K. Yeah. And when we say black-owned businesses, those that self-identify as black. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So 200K check, that's quite a lot of money for a young startup. Absolutely. So what stage of business are they at? Yeah, I mean, good um, good question. Ultimately, again, because they... (laughs) This we feel like Saka at the penalty. <laughs> I gotta be honest, it's like a because of our situation and the reality and the fact that we are working hard to incentivize investment in the black founder community rather than regulate it. We don't want regulation. We want people to be incentivized to know that there is um quality founders here. As a result, we're having to do a little bit further in terms of most like it has to be kind of like post product. Mm-hmm. You know, we would love it to be in a place where eventually we can even do pre-product. But right now we kind of tend to lean into second time founders post-product with a bit of traction. Yeah. Not it doesn't have to be major, but yeah. And just on that point about people, you anchor a lot of your decision making on the founders. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's why for me personally, I would never leave pre-seed. It's that friends and family remit where usually those that believe in you, you know, um, are those that maybe favour you and they're giving you an opportunity to prove, you know, and everyone needs that opportunity. I received it in a number of ways, actually, even in my overall kind of like social mobility, you know, so I'm um, being in a position to be able to provide that for those that aren't getting any, you know, and I mean, it is a horror film in terms of statistics. So it's more likely that you will contract skin cancer as a black founder than to get venture capital funding in the United Kingdom. Actually got something, <laughs> I've got, no, no, I've actually got something here because it's a yeah. really great point. I think it was Extend Ventures that did some research onto this. Yeah. So ethnic minorities received just 1.7% of capital invested in at all stages. Yep. But for black founders, it was 0.24. Yeah. So less than 0.3%. And, that, and that's black men. Black women, it's 0.024. 
Oh, I mean, my man. Is... <laughs> <What's going on>? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in this day and age, like it's crazy, but that's the reality. Seriously, you know. So, yeah, no, it is a bit of a horror film. The funny thing is, we've actually felt that statistic while raising this. Like I had no grey hairs in my beard prior, <laughs> prior to kick off. And now you can see there's a lot of salt with this pepper, you know? So like, I mean, it has been a slugger. It has been a slugger. I've got to be honest. It has, you know, and I, it's a slugger for anyone raising money. I'm not disputing that. It's a level of work, but it's just about it being in the realm of possibility, you know, to think that there are others that are pitching in this way with propositions that are compelling also. Mm. and just haven't been able to foster that conviction in the investor. And because of these biases, you know, that exist, the fact that they are unable to get a warm introduction, you know, it's just, yeah, it just shouldn't be the case. I'm going to put you on the spot. Go for it, my man. I've heard that in order to get more investment to flow into black-owned businesses, you need more black venture capitalists. Yes. Yeah. Do you agree? I agree. Absolutely. I mean... There is a level, there's a human leaning to tri tribalism. There is, you know? There is, like, I connect with, like, if I've met someone and they have had a turbulent childhood, even if the turbulence isn't um, around the tilt of gangsterism, I don't know, maybe they had an abusive, like, you know, father or just that level of kind of trauma that is induced at quite, like in those formative years and they have that. I tend to connect to them I'm yeah, like, yeah. immediately, you know, because there is a semblance and we can't dispute that. And then also it's not just about the racial lens. It's about a cultural lens that is quite akin to a racial lens. So what we might esteem and say is like means X or means Y or connotes X or connotes Y. These subtle nuances, you're, if you're outside of um, that cultural dynamic, you're not able to really kind of, of identify. You know, I had a friend of mine who actually was um, CEO of a company and Nigerian woman, and she realized that there was hardly any black people on her team. She's like, how is this happening? Because I know that the recruiter that I work with is not, like, they're not racist, you know? Hence why they work with me, you know? Like, we've been, like, I'm clear on that. And then she just kind of wanted to do some investigating. And then basically it turns out, so she asked to sit in on one of the, like, the interviews essentially for this new role that they're hiring for. And then she was like, can you see the young lady that had just come, who was of, of um, African descent, and she was like, did you see that when I asked her certain questions, certain things, like there was just an overall lack of confidence. And then this friend of mine, who's the CEO of the company, actually took a look and saw the name and was like, you realise that they were avoiding the eye contact to display respect. That was mm. cultural. That had nothing to do with their confidence to be able to look you eye to eye. It is because, <laughs> and it's these subtleties that like if you aren't aware then you just don't know and then as a result you're going to misinterpret certain things and then you're going to miss yeah. you know so we need more black vcs to not miss these black founders that can be coming out and creating these generational companies so i'm going to put you on the spot again again go for it <laughs> my man 
a lot you're going to see a lot of deal flow naturally yeah, absolutely but the majority of that deal flow a lot of the companies that come to you are not going to be suited to venture capital agreed yeah mm, yes and no actually i see a lot of deal flow but because they know that we only invest in tech and tech enabled companies mm -hmm. it tends to be companies that could potentially be venture backable but maybe not that we would back them as a venture fund okay yeah. okay yeah because your ambition is to find black owned businesses that are going to become unicorns one day agreed yeah yeah there's not going to be a whole load of companies that are going to fit that remit though yeah agreed totally so a lot of what you look for then is the founder and yeah. that emotional element of which by the way is pretty consistent across the board for anyone that's writing a check to a yeah. company yeah. is that emotional connection that you have with that founder as well yeah uh, how much emphasis do you place on the product i mean product market fit all of these buzzwords is i mean you can't avoid that it has to yeah. be able to like every investment we make has to be able to recoup the fund essentially so we have to see that it can scale you know, we have to see that there is a visionary kind of that management team. We have to see that they have that, you know, um, we have to see that there is a founder fit in terms of maybe not just their passion points, but their experiences and their previous kind of like um, endeavours, you know, it kind of correlates with what it is that they're trying to solve for, you know. So definitely all the other kind of like buzzwords and checklists, it's definitely we have to take that on board too, because we're, we're in the business of saying no, essentially, you know, but I'm all right with saying no, because this is bigger than even the companies we invest in. It's bigger than us as at Black Seed. We actually believe we are a seed <laughs> being planted to bring about these fruits. And that fruit is a facial change in terms of what the face of entrepreneurialism looks like globally. You know, we need, we need an incorporation. We need to see a more diverse face, you know, when we look in the mind's eye because that's what's going to move the needle. So, I mean, we hope that even the companies understand that if we haven't been able to develop the conviction for them, it's nothing personal. You know, this is because we need to achieve an aim that's bigger than even just returning our money to our LPs, you know, and lining our own pockets. we got to literally contribute to the overall catalogue of proof points and references you know that people know that the black entrepreneurial community is like viable 100 yeah and remember this is a business transaction with a strong powerful mission behind it yeah but let me put you on the spot again yeah friend. go for it <laughs> you write the 200k check is that what you give me no, not at all. It don't stop there. We are the gift that keeps giving, my man. So, listen, so we've been able to show, we came out of the bats in a certain way, yeah? There's a number of things that it takes, as you know, for a business to take off. That being said, um, we see ourselves as capital connections, not just in terms of being able to, when the time is appropriate, introduce you to those that are downstream investors. You know, we have that ability in quite a significant way, actually. Our LPs tend to cover the entire entrepreneurial ecosystem in terms of series, you know. Mm -hmm. We have those in the top quartile in terms of like investors that are for the follow-on phase of which we 
um, are the... Um, this is moving from pre-seed to seed, yeah, series A to series yeah, yeah. B and beyond. We, we covered it. Yeah. I mean, we had to approach it that way because we knew that the founder won't stop being black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, so we had to approach it that way. So, yeah. I mean, but just like in terms of also being able to unlock certain uh, media moments, mm -hmm. you know, we've been able to prove that, you know, by... Like whether it be from our front page coverage of the FT to double page spread and wire to our rollout actually for September because we've got a huge rollout September. I'm um, in a huge announcement piece for first close and the rest of it, the fact that we've raised. And like we can also provide that for our founders, nice. you know, so like it's, it's, it's a visibility play as well. It's also we have very seasoned um, scale up specialist who has um, he's actually for series A to series B, but over the last six months, we've co-created one for pre-seed to seed, you know, of which we um, present an offer to our um, portfolio as well as a wraparound component. And then we also give um, rent-free occupancy of our offices um, for six months for free. That's know? amazing, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we have 2,400 square foot in Brixton Village. And we also have 2,400 square foot in Greater Manchester. Six months, right? Six months, so rent-free. Working space... Rent is what, yeah. like three, four hundred pound a month. Yeah, easy. Yeah, that's easy. That's really good. Yeah, that's amazing. This must give you a lot of joy. Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely chuffed. Got to be honest, super chuffed. Definitely haven't had the time to really soak it in. I took my first holiday, which was to Portugal about oh, two weeks ago, and that was my first holiday in about sixteen months. Nice, Where's you it? know, huh? Where? Golgov. Oh God, yeah, 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 yeah. So it was, it was a nice time, but that was my first time away in there, yeah, 16 months. So I actually got to think about things then, but I tried not to think about it too much because it's a holiday. And then I was trying to shut off for a second, but got to sit down and really kind of like mull things over. Mate, yeah, it's been huge. 16 months, you deserve a holiday. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> you won't need another one after this uh, podcast today. All right, dude. Well, let's finish with a couple of closing questions. Yeah, go for it. So what's what's next for you, right? You've done yeah. so much to help others. How do you see Black Seed growing? And do you have more projects on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, the aim like the startups, our aim is to start up and scale up. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, we have scale up plans of which we have journeying partners that are like in synergy and aligned. So it's a global problem with only 1% of venture funding globally going to Black founders, you know. We've got sites of in Europe, Africa, a nod to the US, like we're going to go and get it done. That being said, in terms of me, maybe personally, I want to continue to prove it's not a pipeline problem, but an allocation problem. <laughs> so for me personally, that just looks like raising more money and giving it to the underestimated essentially you know so i mean i foresee i do believe i have found my sweet spot actually where i can be super effective and of which can support myself and my family on a mercenary mercenary level you know but also feeds in terms of my mission and why i think i'm here on earth you know so yeah if there was somebody listening right now in a similar position to where you were how would you begin to help them what would you say i would say that Pressure makes diamonds, so don't think that you're starting at zero. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that, it's that zero, I have nothing, and nothing almost begets nothing. 
and begets more nothingness, you know? When you begin to interpret your life experiences, it has actually developed muscles that others haven't even had to know and exist, you know? It has given you a diversity in terms of lens of which you're able to lend a unique perspective. It has been an informal classroom, you know, for various other things, you know? So just know that you're not starting at zero and ultimately understand that the world is currently because of the barriers vacant of you you know so like we always looking for job vacancies but we should also understand that the world is vacant of you you know and it's your job ultimately to contribute you know so the dude to not let you in through the front door ho 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 climb through the chimney you know so yeah (laughs) (laughs) one last one because you've got such a strong purpose right how would you like to be remembered in years to come Oh, I mean, it's a term they throw around a lot, but agent of change. I want it to be that I changed things. Like, I mean, I want it to be that the consequence and ramifications of my contributions meant that my son experienced a different London, a different UK, a different planet than the one I did. Like, I want to change things yeah i wanted to be a change maker remembered as someone who changed the game powerful man (laughs) Uh, you are a change maker uh, in my eyes and i'm sure people listening here would agree with me with that let's end this podcast man but thank you so much it's been an absolute privilege yeah no i agree the true pleasure thank you thank you man